This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, community and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We've been working through our Why Church series, and we've been talking a lot about the why the church exists and why God created the church, what, why the church is a necessity, why we should care, what our role should be in the church, all those things we've been talking through. And today, I want to talk about something that is a very sensitive topic, and it's one that I think all of us on some level can connect to. It's a topic that's causing uh, a lot of concern uh, throughout Christianity uh, all over the world right now. Um, And it is the topic of church hurt and its connection to another word, deconstruction. Church hurt and deconstruction. Those words will uh, elicit any number of emotions, feelings, thoughts, concerns, kind of knee-jerk reactions. Uh, And before we get into all of that, let me just ask you, have you experienced church hurt? Have you been through situations that you would define as church hurt? And what has it led you to do? How has it led you to feel? A Barna poll back in 2010 showed that 40% of non-church-going Americans say that they no longer attend church because of a negative experience with a church or a congregant. There are countless Americans that uh, have been hurt or alleged to have been hurt by a church's teachings, oppressive policies, immoral leaders, rigid expectations, and misbehaving members. In my own experience, I have my share of church hurt, and I've attended several churches all over the country and a few in other countries as well from multiple denominations. And in all of those churches, I've seen the various wounds that people have sustained while attending church. Various issues that you might call church hurt. Some examples, women in abusive marriages being told that their job is to stay and pray. And they're promised that the church will stand by them and, and, and be there to support them. But if or when That woman chooses to divorce and leave that dangerous marriage. She becomes ostracized and isolated. There are cases where someone opens up about their struggles, emotional or or mental struggles and issues that they're dealing with, only to be told that their emotional issues are a function of a lack of faith by church leadership, and they don't feel safe. Other situations where someone might stand up to abusive and narcissistic pastoral leadership, and they try to call those things out, and they are completely removed and completely disenfranchised in many many ways. There are countless stories like this. If we go more meta, there are churches and their congregants who have voted in large majorities to disenfranchise those on the margins in the name and in the authority of Jesus. 
different legislative approaches that deal with uh, discriminating along racial lines and uh, socioeconomic lines, the poor, sexual orientation, any of those things that will come up. There are people who have acted on behalf of the church to treat these others as other, as something less than the very image of God. And for that reason, people feel a great deal of hurt, so much hurt that it leads them into this place of what we call, what has been deemed deconstruction. Now, this word deconstruction, it's, it's in some circles become a bad word, a scary word, especially if it's something with which we are unfamiliar. And that's because deconstruction is often seen as synonymous with destruction. We often will think, some will think, if something's being deconstructed, it must therefore be uh, being, uh, must be attempted to be eradicated right now. Someone must be trying to eliminate something. And it need not be that way. We need not view it that way. We might see it as a slippery slope because for some it can be. Uh, But for many, it is an effort to do what the late Rachel Held Evans called taking a massive inventory of your faith, tearing every doctrine from the cupboard and turning one over in your hand to evaluate whether or not it's still intact. Now, I, before I ever went into ministry, before I even went into the military, I spent time in undergrad studying electrical engineering. And a good portion of that was to learn how to code. So I did a lot of computer programming in a different world, a different life ago. I would spend time pouring over thousands of lines of computer code. And there would be different uh, assignments uh, given to us by professors. Hey, your job is to create this, or your job is to create that. And here's what I want to see on the screen when it displays. And here's the input I want to be able to put in. And here's what I'd like to see come out. And so if I was creating a database program, if I want to put someone's name in, and I want their name, their, their address, their age, and their height to be output, this is the way that we need to write the code. And so many times we'd spend weeks, sometimes months, writing code for different programs, and you would have people come test your program. When they would come and test the program, they put the input in. Sometimes the the output would come out completely wrong. Sometimes the output, I might have to put in Daryl, and I want my name, age, height, weight, whatever to come out. And for whatever reason, it just says Daryl, 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 just in this, what they call a recursive loop. And it's just looping and looping and looping and looping and nothing else changes. Now, I give that to my professor. My professor looks at the program and says, something's wrong. This program isn't working right. Uh, The output is not something that we wanted. There's a less than desirable output occurring right now. Something needs to be fixed. Now, a good programmer is going to go, well, let me go back to the drawing board. Let me open up my program again. Let me look through all of the thousands of lines of code. Let's go to the section that's supposed to be responsible for that piece of output and let me rework it or let me debug it. Ultimately, in order to make a program better, you have to be well-versed in deconstructing it because deconstructing it will only make it even stronger when it's constructed again. And so everyone knows this, even within the engineering world, in order for you to make something stronger, you have to know how to break it apart, inspect it. People know this when they're working on a car. One of the things that people will often do when something's wrong in an engine and they can't figure out what's wrong with it, you take apart the entire engine and you work through every single element. Then you put it back together again. Good as new. And now it's working again. 
deconstructing is never something, should not be something looked at as negative, should actually be looked at as the best programmers do it, the most the, the, the most well-versed engineers do it, and I would argue that the most mature Christians should be able to do it as well. So the question is, though, what happens when people get to a place where church hurt leads them to start deconstructing? What are they deconstructing? I think many times people think deconstruction becomes destruction because we start to assume that people deconstructing, quote unquote, their faith means they're deconstructing Jesus. They're deconstructing their their belief in who Jesus is. They're deconstructing who God is. And in many cases, they're deconstructing the power structures that may have hurt them in the name of Jesus. And they're trying to figure out, what do I do with these destructive situations that are claiming to be doing so? in the name of this loving God that I've learned so much about and that I've learned to love and begin to serve. And again, I would say, and some people will think that any type of thinking like that is the sign of an immature Christian because we have falsely equated maturity with rigidity. And we think that to be mature means that you have to be you have to have unwavering fealty and fidelity to each and every position and structure that we may have learned or adapted or adopted in our Christian walk. But I would argue that the real healthy type of deconstruction, that kind of deconstruction is actually a sign of mature faith and I would I would I would offer evidence uh, by looking at Jesus's life and Jesus's ministry. Jesus demonstrated deconstruction throughout his ministry. If we remember ways in which Jesus deconstructed, keep in mind, the world that Jesus uh, was in, physically, the world that Jesus was in was one in which the Jewish leadership, those that were God's people, their job was to convey the heart of God to the people, had been so for millennia. So you've got, for all intents and purposes, that's kind of similar to the church. So you've got leaders, church leaders, Jewish leaders, Their job is to preach. Their their job is to pray. Their job is to help bring people into worship, care for community. These were God's people. They were leaders. They were teaching. Jesus comes onto the scene and you've got long rhythms of people serving God and long rhythms of people worshiping and praying in the temple. And Jesus comes in and he starts to deconstruct what they thought they understood about the law. He starts to deconstruct what they thought they understood about who God is. And he does this as young as 12 years old uh, to people who are leaders of the faith. And you see situations where Jesus says things like, well, you guys know that the scriptures say not to murder. And the Pharisees knew that these leaders, these Jewish leaders, this isn't even a negative thing. These were leaders, many of them maybe even sincerely wanting to lead God's people. And here they are, they knew that murder broke the law. But Jesus had to say, but let me just, I need to deconstruct this for you because you you start and stop there, but I need to help bring you back and make you realize that it doesn't start with the action. It starts with your heart. It starts with what's happening internally. They didn't realize that someone's cruel thoughts could actually be in God's eyes just as guilty of breaking the law as murder is. They thought that the command against adultery was purely behavior-based. They didn't realize that your thoughts could actually be this just as in violation of God's law as the actions. Jesus is deconstructing the way that they thought they understood God's law and God's heart. Jesus deconstructed the Sabbath. 
In many ways, he, you see the Pharisees. Remember when the Pharisees were very angry, I believe in Matthew 12, Jesus is healing on the Sabbath and he responds and tells them that uh, the Sabbath was actually created for man. Man wasn't created for the Sabbath. He's turning their understanding of their own theology on its head because he's trying to show them that you are having some very unhealthy practices now because you are actually okay with someone holding to this theological principle while someone else is hurt, harmed, and not being healed because of it. You've missed the whole boat. Allow me to deconstruct that for you. So he does. You even see the ways in which he deconstructs their form of worship in the law. When he talks about, uh, at Matthew 23, you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and you've omitted uh, the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These are, these are things you should have done and not to leave the other undone. Again, deconstructing the ways in which they thought their worship was enough, ways in which they thought they were doing things the right way, and Jesus is showing them Actually, the way you're doing it is leaving people harmed and people not cared for. Jesus kind of gave us the, the playbook on healthy deconstruction. Now, let's be honest. It is not exactly easy or fun to admit that something that maybe we once believed wholeheartedly and with every fiber of our being may not have encompassed the whole picture or worse, was just outright wrong. It might mean uh, that we need to rethink an entire phase of our lives. It might mean uh, we have to rethink how we perceive people, what we devote our time to, what we denounce or what we uphold. It could even mean suddenly realizing that something we've done or thought for our entire lives is actually destructive to ourselves and to others. And it'll definitely move us into those in-between places we talked about last year. It'll move us into those liminal spaces where we, we're, we're letting go of something, but we're not quite sure where to go next. Those are difficult places to be. But I would argue if we do this in a really healthy way, it's a very mature place to be. Again, these folks who are doing this, many of these people who are deconstructing in this way, they're not destroying faith in Jesus, but instead they are deconstructing the leaders and the structures that profess to speak for Jesus. And in so doing, those same leaders and structures are using their power and their platforms to cause great harm, both through acts of commission and acts of omission. And that's important because we, the church, will often, and this is, this is consider this, how we are prone to respond to people who are sharing or alleging church hurt? How are churches, both congregants and leaders, how are we prone to react when someone deals with or is alleging church hurt? Typically, we have this immediate retort that puts the onus on the person. We put the pressure on them. We put the responsibility on them to fix it, deal with it. Don't be bitter. Figure out how to deal, get past that hurt. Learn how to forgive. Learn how to forbear. And there are places on a case-by-case -case basis where we need to have those conversations. So don't hear me saying there's no place for any of that. But I do think it's dangerous if that's our go-to. Actually, I, I would, there's not even a think. I know it's been dangerous that that's been our go-to. Because so many people then feel invalidated and they don't know that what they've really experienced is something that should be healed and it should be worked toward. And the people who did the harming 
should be a part of the process of doing the actual healing. So often our thing is, hey, just make sure you're not getting too bitter. Make sure you're checking your heart. Make sure that uh, you're not uh, getting these really, really unhealthy patterns in your own heart at the way you look at people and look at the church. And again, there's a place for that, but that probably shouldn't be our starting point. And usually for the church, that's the starting and the ending part. How do I know this? Well, go ahead and Google. I would encourage Google uh, how churches can help stop church hurt or how churches can be a part of the process of healing church hurt. I did this Google search and I went five pages into Google and every single response was how you can heal from church hurt, how you can get past church hurt, how you can change your view of the church so that you can still hold on right. Now, again, there's a place for that. But why is it so hard to see websites and to see folks teaching and calling out the church and telling the church, here are ways you can debug your programming. Here are ways that you can actually go through the thousands of lines of doctrinal coding and and worship coding and church leadership coding. And here are the ways in which you can ensure that you don't hurt. And if you do hurt, here's how you repent well. I, I even looked that up. How churches repent? Nothing. Five pages in, nothing. Why? Well, because when you're in leadership, the number one goal so often is protecting the company shield protecting the PR machine. If I have to do the heavy lifting and realizing that the structure that I'm a part of may indeed have had hands in causing real harm, I've got to do that work. That's going to hurt what the PR look is. That's going to hurt the narrative that's out there. And so if the narrative is that there are issues here that people aren't dealing with well, that's going to keep people from coming. But I would say if the narrative was, here's how the church takes responsibility for their own Uh, damage that they've caused. Here's what holistic repentance looks like in the church. Do you realize how safe that space would become? Do you realize how brave that space would become? Do you realize like what could possibly happen for those who are in a place where they're wrestling and they're trying to figure out how do I hold on to God in the midst of being harmed by God's people? Wow, they're humble enough to acknowledge the ways in which they've caused some of this pain. I feel like I can wrestle here. I feel like I can deal with some of these hard issues here. But here's another retort that we give as the church in leadership, a system of which I'm a part. Here's what we, are, what we do so often, in, in, in my opinion, uh, in a desire to protect the shield and to protect. We find ways to put it on other people. We find, I think there was a famous, very, very famous uh, church, uh, a Christian website that said, here are the primary reasons for church hurt. I mean, for the primary reasons for deconstructing. And one was church hurt. And then it was bad teaching and people's desire to sin. And so it ends up putting all the onus ultimately on people, uh, on the people in the church, the people who are being harmed. And one of the things that we do so often, and this is the second retort we give, is we say things like, look, the church is made up of people and people are sinful. And so being hurt in church is inevitable. And all of that is true. The church is made up of people, people who are broken, people who are sinful, people who are far from perfect. And so real pain does ensue. Real hurt does happen. People let each other down. People sin against each other. People harm one another. 
ultimately we see this uh, uh, and, and we say, so, so because of that, pain and hurt is bound to happen. It's inevitable. This is what I would call the, the fratricide response. And the fratricide response really is when uh, we just basically take the approach uh, that the military takes. And the military fratricide is a term that refers to what we call friendly fire. When you are on the same side and through something unintentional, someone on your team ends up being harmed because maybe you shot in the wrong direction. You mistakenly shot them. Or you were mistakenly shot and possibly killed by someone allegedly on your same team. Some studies have shown that uh, fratricide is responsible for upwards of almost 20% of military casualties, depending on what study you look at. We've got, uh, history is replete, going all the way back to the Revolutionary War, where people have been harmed by people on their own side, mistakenly. And it's true. I saw one general say, uh, the military is made up of people, people make mistakes, Fratricide is going to be inevitable. It's going to happen. And that's true. But should that be true in the same sense of the church? Should we be okay with resting there and saying, hey, listen, um, I know you've been hurt. I know you've been harmed. And it's true. And we acknowledge that. But we just need you to understand that here uh, in the church, much like in the military, we've got people who are not perfect. And so friendly fire is going to happen. We just need you to have some grace and understand the friendly fire is going to happen. Here's what I want to say to that, and and I want us to maybe change our thinking here. Because while there is no question, there's truth to the fact that uh, there there are people in church, and we are all imperfect, and there are painful things that happen. We're not even denying that. But should that be a, a, a comfortable approach? Should we find ourselves more settled by hearing that? Or should we feel like there should be something else that happens? Because here's two big difference between uh, the military and church hurt. Here's the difference between fratricide and church hurt. In the situation where military members are being harmed by their own mistakenly, um, you are aware when you go into the military that this is something that is possible. Now, you hope that uh, your commanders are doing everything in their power to ensure that the right communication is there, the right training is there, the right technology is there, so that people are not being harmed by their own. And and so you assume the risk when you go volunteer into the military, you assume that risk that that could happen, that, that, that it's true that you could potentially be killed by friendly fire. Now you hope and you, you, you trust that that won't happen, but you know that it could. You volunteer for that. And you volunteer for that unintentional killing uh, that that could occur. But it's very different, right? The, the assumption is that in a military environment, the people with whom you were fighting all have the same uniform. And they all have the same goal. They're looking for the enemy. And so everybody on the field is looking to deal with the same enemy. But it's very different when in the church environment, you assume that everybody's wearing the same uniform. But the problem is, To my second point, friendly fire in the military is always unintentional. But friendly fire, if we call it that in the church, is often intentional. Now, sometimes it's unintentional. 
But there are many times where in church environments, there are uh, certain things that that are done and certain approaches that are taken that people know is going to cause real pain. And we're not talking about, we'll talk about this next week, about the difference between what church church hurt is and what it isn't. We're not talking about correction. We're not talking about uh, things that uh, need to happen where there's, you know, we need to be held accountable. We're not talking about that. But we're talking about other things that are done that cause real pain that are completely not in line with the heart of God. And those things are intentional. So to just look at church hurt like friendly fire, we're actually minimizing the damage we're actually doing. Because no matter what, no matter how egregious the mistake is in the military, the one thing people know is this was unintentional. And in many ways, they're able to still hold on and go, this is, I know that this is the price of doing business in the military when we're at war. I know that that can happen, that that unintentional thing can happen. So there's some type of mental way that we can uh, try to reconcile what occurred. I would say that it's even harder for Christians when they are harmed intentionally by not just other believers in the church, but by leadership, because they're going, this was something that was intentional. This wasn't just something that was unintentional. I can't even rest intellectually on the fact that that was just a mistake and that's how that happened. No, that was intentional. And it was not just intentional here. There's a pattern of intentionality with these types of offenses. And we can insert offense. There's no question that there are things that many churches across the country have been guilty of either overlooking, covering up, or just flat out denying. Whether it's issues of sexual abuse, whether it's issues of, of racial impropriety in certain ways, whether it's issues of, of ways in which uh, people, the poor, have been discriminated against, there are long historical examples of that that have been very intentional. And the best we can do is, well, what do you expect? We're not going to be perfect. What do you expect? Hurt happens. People, it's friendly fire. It's going to happen. We have to just learn how to get past that. No. This is something much deeper, and this is something that if you have been, if you have been a person that have been harmed or feel a sense of church hurt, please know God cares about that. Please know it is not, it should not be the role of leadership to invalidate what you've experienced in order to protect ourselves. Because God's heart breaks in the same way. So if you're struggling, if you're struggling with church hurt, if you're struggling with, with the pain of church hurt, or if the church has misrepresented God to you through toxic, abusive actions or words, please know you are not alone. You are not by yourself, and you also are still in the center of God's love and God's justice. God genuinely cares, because guess what? God hates church hurt too. God hates church hurt. I don't know if you've heard that before. I don't know if you even believe that. But I need you to know that God hates church hurt. And it happens, in my opinion, and I think history can prove this and bear this out, that church hurt happens because churches repent poorly, if not at all. One of the main reasons why church hurt goes on for so long is because churches are far better at telling other people to repent than churches are at repenting themselves. And because of that, people go, I I don't know that I can trust this any longer. What you're telling me to do, you don't do. 
If there are situations where people have harmed one another and we go into the Matthew 18 principle and we're talking about if someone sinned against you, go to them and bring your offense to them. And, and if they don't want to hear it, bring other leaders in the church that are impartial to come in and help settle this thing. That's something that's supposed to be good enough for the congregants, but for whatever reason, not good enough for church leadership when certain issues arise. Churches have been very done a very bad job at, at repenting. And that's actually, and people don't want to hear this, but I think that is one of the, that is the largest majority of people who are in the midst of deconstruction. Largely, they're trying to deconstruct situations that happen at the hands of church leadership because church leadership has never really been taught how or called to account to learn how to repent well on behalf of the church. Churches don't repent well. It's just, it's just a fact. Instead, churches often make excuses, scramble to find some either obscure or some area of scripture to justify what has occurred or find a way to invalidate the character of the people who are calling them out. In addition, when the people that we trust manipulate, they shame or reject or use others for selfish gain, the, gain, the, the effects are extremely painful and they're confusing. And it hits us where we're most tender, causing us to question both, both God and our own sense of, of worth. And in some cases, the pain can cause us to wonder, well, if the church, if the church can can, can hurt me so deeply, then what does that say about God? What does that say about who God is anyway? Who is, who is God? Can he really be trusted? Now, we may look at that and go, okay, well, then don't do that because that's a slippery slope. And it is. But, but it's more helpful to get to why those questions are being asked versus you better not ask those questions. Because the reasons those things are being asked, those reasons should be the thing that penetrate our own hearts, especially as leadership, to go, why are people feeling this way? What have, are there things that we have done to cause this? You know, this is the case in a marriage. If somebody's in a marriage and they go, you know, the things that you've done have made me really wonder if you can be trusted. The things you've done have made me really wonder, why did we get married in, in the first place? The things you've done have made me wonder, what was it in you that I saw? that I overlook something in you in order for this to happen? You know how bad it would be to go, listen, you're going down a slippery slope right now. You shouldn't be asking those questions. I see what you're doing. You're deconstructing the reasons why we got married, but I really think you should stop doing that because that's going to lead you to make, making you think you ought not be married anymore. And that's not good because the main goal is to make sure that rigidly we just stay in this same pattern because that's what maturity looks like. Now we can brag about being married 50 years from now, even though 30 of that been horribly unhappy, but maturity though, that is not what we should be doing as people of faith. So when people come and they are in a place of church hurt and deconstruction, the answer is not that slippery, stop doing that. That actually isn't a mature answer. And your proof can't be, and here's how I know it, because look at the people who aren't in church anymore. That outcome by itself is not enough to prove anything. Because we don't know that the people who left ever had an actual uh, uh, safe environment in which the gospel was really lived out. So did they really leave? The healthy church, or have they just left these unhealthy environments while they still wrestle with who God is? I'd rather take the latter because those are folks who are innocently, honestly 
wrestling and trying to figure out who God is, because what I just saw there does not seem to comport well with the actual character of God that I've seen or understand in the scripture. So I'm going to close with one passage of scripture that I want us to sit in, and because it's something that we have sat in before as we talk about individual repentance. (laughs) It's a scripture that I love to go to. It's one that I go to with couples often and with just family and friends when they're trying to deal with things. It's one area of scripture I think we still do incredibly poorly. We do it poorly individually. And admittedly, we do it poorly from a church leadership perspective as well. This is the well-known passage in 2 Corinthians 7. I've preached this three or four times before, but I think it's necessary from a leadership perspective because it's something we do again, like as I've said, so poorly. And this is the place where Paul is talking about, I would argue, the most descriptive, uh, prescriptive place to look when we talk about how repentance should look. Many times when people get angry and they get upset because they're like, you know, we love to do, and this is really sad, but we love to take people from hurt to healing right away or hurt to reconciliation right away. And we skip over the necessity for repentance. It's the most anti-gospel thing we do when we try to uh, call people back to church and we try to call people back into relationships. Well, the, the goal is just having close proximity and staying in the relationship no matter what. That is not the goal. The goal is healthy repentance and then reconciliation. When healthy repentance does not occur, there cannot be any actual reconciliation. So look at this, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 7. I'm going to start at verse 9. By way of review really quickly, this is the place, right, where Paul has been uh, writing letters to a lot of these churches that he's planted or that he's met along the way. People are writing him letters, telling them issues, problems, concerns, encouragement as well. And some, at some point in time, there was a second letter that the church in Corinth wrote to Paul, identifying some things and also responding to the fact that his letter to them, 1 Corinthians, had really hurt their heart, broke their heart, made them really sad, made them grieve, made them really hurt about some things that he said, but not hurt in the way that they felt attacked, hurt in the way that they realized, I'm so broken over the fact that we have not modeled the love of Christ well. We have not modeled God's heart well. We are broken and we are grieved to the point of repenting. Here's what Paul says. And he's talking about the letter. And earlier he had said, listen, I know that you guys have been crying. I know you guys have been grieving over the letter that I wrote you. And I'm sad, but I'm actually not too sad. Here's what he says. I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. Listen to what he says about godly grief and ask yourself, Do we as a church practice this godly grief well? Leadership, if you're a pastor and you're watching this, do you practice this kind of godly grief when people are hurt within our own ministries? Do we have a godly grief here? You were grieved as God will so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. This is how he defines what godly grief should look like. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What deep longing. What zeal. What justice. In every way, you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. So even though I wrote 
to you, it was not because of the one who did wrong or because of the one who was wrong, but in order that your devotion to us might be made plain to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we've been comforted. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God, because in this way, God is legitimately saying that if you are not zealous and longing to make things right that you have wronged, you are not repentant. This is not about, I'm just so tired of having to deal with this again. Oh, I'm so tired. I'm so worried about where this might lead things. How do I make sure that I do damage control so that people don't run down the slippery slope? I'm so concerned. That is not what repentant heart should look like first. The repentant heart should go, I'm actually so broken over the fact that this kind of pain has been caused by this type of abuse of power or this type of teaching that has caused real damage because it's not completely in line or holistically in line with God's heart. And people have called that out the way Paul called these folks. Some of these folks were leaders in the church. And the ways that Paul called out, hey, the stuff that you guys are doing, the way you guys are handling communion and overlooking the poor, because those are the only people that have to work hours where they show up late and now you guys have eaten all the food and drank all the wine. All that stuff that happened there, that's not God's heart. Y'all should, y'all should be ashamed of yourself. That is really what Paul was saying. And what it did for them is it didn't make them go, I'm so angry that you said this to me. I'm so sad. Well, now I'm hurt. I'm going to turn the tables. You're hurting me now. No. They stop and they go, you know, this is exhausting. And I'll be honest with you. In these roles, this can be tiring and exhausting, trying to figure out how to get it right every time. But ultimately, if a church is repentant, you don't ever get tired of repenting. Because that's not what zeal looks like. That's what tolerating the situation looks like. But when he says, look at what zeal, what longing, what anger. This isn't anger at the person who's brought up the offense. This is anger at ourselves, right? Because we realize that this is even bigger than us and bigger than the person that's been hurt. This is showing we are not doing a great job at imaging the God that made us and redeemed us. So I would submit that the primary reason why people are struggling why people are gradually moving further, further, we'll say away from the faith. And I would say really away from this institutionalized form of Christianity, regardless of the flavor that it is, is in, in, in for some people, there are other reasons that we can talk about that and there are other motivations. But I think a large number of people are struggling because they've not seen that type of repentance. And if the scriptures are to be believed, that type of repentance is what draws people back. That type of repentance is what brings people into reconciliation. That type of repentance is what creates and engenders a healthy reconstruction of who God really is. Listen, we shouldn't be afraid of deconstruction. If the truth is the truth, then closer inspection and closer evaluation should only make us more looking like Jesus. So I would encourage, I, people are like, hey, I'm really deconstructing. I want to figure out what this really means because what I've seen has been so painful. That's great. Let's walk through this. Now, we need to do that in a safe community. We need to do that in a place where it's uh, safe to do. And, and, and there's a, a, an honest, I mean, honest, an innocent, honest, honest and innocent approach to dealing with the scriptures. But in so doing, we should be able to sit and go, let's, let's pull that out of the cupboard and evaluate it. Let's see what this is. And maybe there are some things that we've been pushing dogmatically or teaching that if we evaluate it again in light of God's heart and the scriptures, maybe we need to pull back. Because maybe this isn't something that we should do. Listen, there's a, uh, there are a ton of things we do now that the early churches never did. At some point, somebody deconstructed and said, we need not do that anymore. Maybe it was right for the time, and maybe it's not right now. and We don't need to be dogmatic about it right now. 
In addition, church hurt. We're going to talk about this over the next two weeks. Church hurt can, can damage how you think about yourself. Rationally, you might know that the pain is not your fault, but parts of you, parts of you still wonder, did, did I do something wrong? Did I do something to make uh, this uh, happen? Does God view me uh, differently because of this? And, and eventually, not a healthy type of, if there's real sin, then there is a degree of shame that we feel over our sin. But this kind of stuff, many times, is a form of toxic shame. And it enters into your mind. And you start wondering, well, if that church represents God, then how could they be wrong? And, and what if I'm the problem? What if I deserved what I got? If you're struggling with pain of church hurt or if a church misrepresented God to you through toxic, abusive actions or toxic words, as we said before, please know you're not alone. And God is with you and God is angry and God is offering comfort and he's offering himself because this is not actually true of him either. And so one of the things that I want us to do over the next couple of weeks so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna walk through what church hurt looks like, what it doesn't look like. We're going to walk through what it means to rightly heal from church hurt. And as we've talked about now, what it means to rightly repent, specifically on behalf of church leadership and churches all over. But at the end of the day, this is not about deconstructing. And most people are not in a place where they're just deconstructing their uh, Jesus as a whole, God as a whole. Some are. But many of the people are trying to figure out, how do I make, how do I connect what I've seen here with the very heart of God? So we're going to spend time looking at who God truly is, his attributes, and measure that against so that we're not just getting to a place where we stop at deconstruction, but we continue moving to a healthy place of reconstruction. Because that's actually what God has been modeling. And that's what we see throughout the history of the church. That's what we see throughout the history of Jesus' ministry. And that's what mature sanctification should look like for all of us. So may we engage in a healthy form of this type of taking accountability for church hurt, walking through healthy deconstruction, and let's land on the right holistic gospel side of reconstruction. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Sometimes we struggle with knowing even what your goodness looks like. God, as we have, some of us have suffered at the hands of those who claim to be purveyors of your goodness, or those of us who may have been guilty of causing real pain, allegedly on your behalf. God, I pray that you would give us a heart of humility. I pray that you would give us a heart of repentance. I pray that we would create and help create a healthy environment where people can live in those liminal spaces where they're not sure what is safe to hold on to, but they're wanting to hold on to you. And so, God, I pray that we would learn what healthy deconstruction is, what it isn't, and what right reconstruction should look like. God, give us your wisdom, give us your heart, give us your spirit, and let this be done for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive this benediction now. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, but to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It's to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people say, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings.
Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.